Welcome. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another of our book and print talks. Book and print talks are presented by the University of Oregon faculty authors whose recently published books were supported by an OHC research fellowship and or an OHC subvention grant to help cover publication costs. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. This talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the coast reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to Oregon, and to the world. In following the indigenous protocol of acknowledging the original people of the land we occupy, we also extend our respect to the nine federally recognized indigenous nations of Oregon, the Burns Paiute tribe, the Confederated Tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Susla Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, the Coquel Indian Tribe, the, Co the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians, and the Klamath Tribes. We express our respect to the many more tribes who have ancestral connections to this territory, as well as to all displaced indigenous people who call this place we call Oregon home. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today. Michael Malik Najjar is Associate Professor of Theater Arts and a participating faculty member in Middle East and North African Studies at the U of O. Professor Najjar's scholarly interests include contemporary Arab American theater and performance, contemporary theater, ethnic studies, critical race theory, and Arab American studies. Professor Najjar is the author of the, uh, the monograph, Arab American Drama, Film and Performance, a Critical Study from 2015. He has also edited a series of important anthologies of Middle Eastern and Arab American drama, including four Arab American plays, 2014, six plays of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, co-edited with Jamil Khoury and Corey Pond, 2019, the selected works of Youssef El Gwindi from 2019, and Heather Raffo's Iraq plays, uh, the Things That Can't Be Said 2021. Professor Najjar has published numerous articles on Arab American, Middle Eastern American, and Middle Eastern theater and performance, and he is an active and innovative theater director, having uh, directed numerous plays in New York City, Chicago, Minneapolis, Portland, and Eugene, and here at the U of O. Among his many awards and fellowships are a UO Fund for Faculty Excellence Award, a UO Faculty Research Mentor Award, an NEH Summer Institute Fellowship, a Certificate of Merit for Directing from the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival, and the Ernst G. Mahl Faculty Research Fellowship in Literary Studies from the Oregon Humanities Center. Today, Professor Njar will talk with us about his newest monograph, Middle Eastern American Theater, Communities, Cultures, and Artists, published by Bloomsbury Methuen Drama in 2021. The writing of the monograph and publication were supported by uh, funds from the Oregon Humanities Center 
Welcome, Michael. We're really looking forward to learning more about Middle Eastern American theater. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And thanks to all of you who are joining us today uh, during your lunch break. I'm grateful that you've attended. Um, as a theater person, we're always happy to have audiences. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to share my screen and uh, actually uh, show you the covers of the uh, two publications I had the opportunity of uh, completing while at the Oregon Humanities Center. Um, thank you so much uh, to the OHC for this uh, ability to do our work the way that we do. And uh, the, these are the, the two publications that, um, that are now complete and out on bookshelves uh, today. Um, thank you, Paul, Jenna, Melissa, and Peg for all you've done. Um, it's, it's so heartening to have the support of colleagues uh, like you, yourselves, who've just made it possible to do the work that we do, um, from uh, the fellowship to the subvention funds, um, it, it really is, um, it's a blessing, to be honest, and I'm, I'm grateful for the time that you all allowed me to uh, also complete this manuscript, which took um, quite a bit, and um, I'm happy that it's, uh, it's in the world now. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Middle Eastern American uh, as a category, as a, an identity. And of course, uh, this is a contested identity because what does it mean, really? Um, what do we do with terms like Middle East that, was, that were created, frankly, by colonial imperial powers uh, like Great Britain? Um, and uh, really situated uh, an entire region of a world with tens of millions of uh, people um, in, uh, in it, um, according to their geographical centrality. Um, and so we have several terms that float around that are uh, the, the, the terms du jour, if you will, uh, of the movement. One is Middle Eastern American, I, I hope you can all see the slides that I'm uh, showing right now. Yes, great. Uh, Middle Eastern American. Uh, Middle Eastern American relies, again, on the European construct of Middle East. Um, but also, the question is, which nations constitute this geographical de designation? Um, if you Google Middle Eastern American or if you look it up, um, you sometimes find um, the countries that we commonly associate with the Middle East. Sometimes you find North Africa added. And sometimes you'll even find uh, countries in South Asia. So what exactly is Middle Eastern uh, becomes a question. Another term that's uh, used is MENA, Middle Eastern North African, combining Middle East with the nations and cultures of North Africa. Um, this is um, uh, a more generally accepted uh, terminology. However, it has its own difficulties because it tends to um, elide other uh, distinct cultures that are found in North Africa. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm part of the steering committee of MENA, uh, MANATMA, the Middle East North Africa Theater Makers Alliance. And so we decided to go with MENA instead of Middle Eastern in that particular way. But there was also a, a debate over that term and some people saying, why don't we use SWANA, uh, Southwest Asia, North Africa, as the designation. This is much more geographically correct um, and so because the Middle East is technically in Southwest Asia. Um, but of course, here is another problem. Uh, what happens when you come from this area? Are you then an Asian American if you come from Southwest Asia? And of course, as we know, that uh, cultural designation uh, is also something that is not um, uh, it, that is already a contested uh, um, designation by uh, many people from, uh, from South Asia, for instance. 
um, and Eastern Asia. And then, of course, uh, North Africans uh, would say, well, aren't we African-Americans if we're, say, from Egypt? Um, so, again, a difficult uh, negotiation as far as terminology is concerned. And then Man Manasa, uh, Middle East, North Africa, South Asian. So that adds South Asia. But as we all know, South Asia has an immense population and diversity of its own. And so to add that to Middle East and North Africa becomes an even larger uh, palette of, and, and another uh, difficult negotiation. Um, well, let's look at the census. So let's get back to the, to the United States. And technically, if you look here on the last census, it says, uh, what is person one's race? White, print, for example, German, Irish, English, Italian, Lebanese, Egyptian, etc. Well, that's interesting. Uh, not uh, many people who are, say, Lebanese or Egyptian consider themselves white or are viewed as, quote unquote, white. So um, what has happened is that there is no box for Middle Easterners on the census. And uh, this leads to some very interesting problems um, that are larger than just nomenclature. Uh, and this uh, uh, article by uh, Laura Misher in the uh, NBCnews.com, uh, she writes, quote, by omitting the MENA category, the census not only deprives Middle Eastern Americans of potential funding for programs supporting our communities, but it also prevents us from understanding the strength of our numbers and others from understanding the value of our unique experiences. The 2030 census may be a decade away, but it's not too early for the community to start raising our voices to demand recognition in the country we call home. Middle Eastern Americans need and deserve a MENA category. The census may not count us, but that doesn't mean that we don't count, unquote. And um, this is a very real issue. Uh, I'll give you a, a, an example. My, my wife, uh, Rana Halabi Najjar, who's a professor of nursing, um, originally wanted to do research in Arab American uh, health disparities, but there is no data in that field because it is not considered a category outside of the white category on the census. So th these lead to very real problems when we're looking at health disparities, educational disparities, social um, uh, determinants of health, et cetera. And so the idea of having a MENA box is very important. Now, let me give you the counter argument. Many in the MENA community feel that there's enough governmental surveillance and profiling and that they do not want a box because that will only lead to further uh, surveillance and profiling. Um, so as you can see, not everyone in the, the MENA category, if we'll use that term, um, agrees that there should be a box because of the fear, the literal fear of governmental persecution. Um, and so here we find that uh, this community is not monolithic, it is not homogeneous, and therefore it will not have similar opinions on these critical issues. Um, of course, whiteness is another interesting <laughs> conundrum. Uh, what is whiteness? But in the context of Middle Eastern Americans, um, a, uh, a study that was done, literally published this month uh, that I had found says, quote, the U.S. government's classification of Middle Eastern and North African Mena Americans as white means there is no direct way to numerically count members of this group in official statistics. Therefore, any potential disparities and inequalities faced by Mena Americans remain hidden. Nevertheless, we find that MENA Americans may not be perceived nor perceive themselves to be white. These findings underscore the minoritized status of MENA Americans and support the inclusion of a new MENA identity category in the U.S. Census. 
This would allow researchers to examine the social, economic, and health status of this growing population and empower community advocates to ameliorate existing inequalities, unquote. Um, but the question of whiteness is very interesting because now we get into questions of colorism. And um, as we know, Middle Eastern Middle Easterners in general can be of many skin tones uh, from, uh, from the lightest to the darkest. Uh, and this sense of uh, colorism is something that is pervasive uh, not only here, but of course in the Middle East. And there is uh, there are um, all sorts of discriminations based on colorism uh, in the Middle East. And, and so uh, where, where how does somebody who is very, quote unquote, dark skin, uh, categorize as white when in truth they're not perceived as white um, in the society. And so this, this adds another layer of complication to the notion of whiteness and being Middle Eastern or North African. Um, and we're finding this to be um, another uh, complication in our understanding of not only Middle Easterners within the U.S. context, but also within a larger context of, uh, of the world. Um, Middle Eastern Americans themselves, if we look at the statistics uh, here, in numbers in millions, Arab Americans are somewhere in the two to three million uh, range. Uh, Iranian or Persian Americans, uh, according to the last census, are around one million um, members. Jewish Americans uh, are 7.5 million. Um, and um, the question now becomes, what do we... Uh, what do we designate as Jewish Americans versus Israeli Americans? Of course, there's crossover, but not all Jewish Americans uh, are Israeli. And maybe not all Israelis um, consider themselves, quote unquote, Jewish Americans in that same um, uh, hierarchy. And of Turkish Americans, around 350,000. Uh, so this gives you a general idea of some of the larger groups. But of course, within the smaller minorities of those groups, we have Armenian Americans, Assyrian, Chaldean, and Syriac, um, uh, Baha'i. Berber or Amazigh, um, Shabbat Lubavitch, Hasidic Orthodox Jews, uh, Druze, um, Kurdish and Syrian Jews or Orthodox Sephardic Jews. These are even more minorities that are within the minority category. Uh, so as we can see, there, there are so many layers to all of this. Um, and and the, the notion of being able to wrap our arms around what uh, Middle Eastern American uh, is, it, is somewhat problematic and, and difficult. Um, two other notions I'd like to bring up are transnationalism and polyculturalism. Transnationalism is a multicultural society where immigrants are more likely to maintain contact with their culture of origin and less likely to assimilate. Uh, loyalty to the state may compete equally with allegiance to a culture or religion. And this is something that many Middle Eastern uh, and North African Americans uh, contend with, uh, a, a definite allegiance to the homeland versus the adopted land of the United States. And then polyculturalism, the belief that cultures are connected and mutually influencing one another, related to the greater equality, beliefs, appreciation, and comfort with diversity, a willingness for intergroup contact, and endorsement of liberal immigration and affirmative action policies. And as we see the Middle Eastern Americans uh, go through newer and newer generations, the, the polycultural ethos is one that now takes hold. And we see that we really can't rely on the older notions of, say, multiculturalism that silo groups when we now have people of mixed parentage, mixed ethnicities, um, who still identify as Middle Eastern and can retain their transnational ties to their uh, ethnic countries of origin. 
Middle Eastern American theater companies uh, are abundant in uh, in this country. Uh, we have the Darvog Theater Group, which is a Iranian group, Iranian American group uh, in the Bay Area. Mosaic Theater Company, which is in uh, Jewish uh, theater, in uh, primarily Jewish, but they also have many um, uh, polycultural uh, performances in the Washington D.C. area. Ajiel Theatrical Group, which is an Arab American company that performs primarily in Arabic um, for audiences in Dearborn and travels across the US and Canada. Theater J, which is very much a Jewish uh, theater in Washington, DC. Uh, TART, the Turkish American Repertory Theater and Entertainment Group um, in the, on the East Coast. Noor Theater, which is in uh, New York City and has actually uh, been awarded an Obie Award for uh, their work. Uh, Art to Action in Florida, the Tampa Bay area, um, Silk Road Rising, one of the premier Middle Eastern American companies in Chicago, uh, Golden Thread Productions, another uh, Middle Eastern American company in San Francisco, and Pangea World Theater in Minneapolis, which is a group that does work from the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asian communities. So as you can see, there's a very rich uh, community creating theater throughout the country from these different groups. Now, I had to ask myself when creating this book, how will I categorize these plays? And originally I thought, well, I'll try to categorize them by, a, by cultures or by national ethnicity. So I thought I'd have a chapter on, say, Iranian-American or, or um, Arab-American or Israeli-American. Well, that actually became very problematic because of the intersectionality of all of these identities. And therefore, I found myself uh, scrapping that whole idea and going with more of thematics. And the thematics that I came up with, based on all the plays that I had read, were these, Return to the Homeland plays, where characters uh, who are um, immigrants to North America or the Americas um, return to the homeland and have to deal with being um, not quite American enough and definitely not quite ethnic enough in their own lands because of linguistic differences, cultural differences, societal differences. Persecution plays, societal and governmental persecution, of which there are many in this genre because it is so pervasive. And so people are writing plays that are reflecting the governmental and societal persecution they feel being othered as Middle Eastern Americans. Diaspora plays, the plays that take place by immigrants or their children in the diaspora and how they deal with being othered in the greater societies in which they live. Plays set in the homeland. So writers that are from the Americas who set their plays in the Middle East or North Africa and uh, try to recreate the quote unquote homeland on stage um, through that trans that that process of um, uh, of translation, if you will, and conflict plays, plays to deal with civil wars, things like the Arab Spring, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and things uh, other topics like the Armenian genocide, which now get us into some interesting inter-intra conflicts. For instance, with Armenians who. Um, of course, suffered this horrific genocide, and yet Turkish Americans that perhaps contest that the genocide even occurred. And so what do we do when we have this umbrella that is trying to bring in all of these groups and yet have contentions within them, similarly with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Um, and how do, how do we then represent these conflicts on stage um, and not either offend or uh, cause greater rifts within these communities? 
And I'll take you through several of these uh, genres that, uh, that I have found that are very interesting and hopefully will be enlightening to you. Um, these are different artists who, uh, who create their works. And um, this is Nejla Saeed. She is the daughter of Edward Said, the, the uh, scholar uh, uh, who, of course, wrote the seminal book Orientalism and others. Um, she is a writer and performer, and she wrote a book called Looking for Palestine, Growing Up Confused in an Arab American Family. <laughs> uh, several of us know exactly what that means. Um, but also, uh, she did a stage production called Palestine. Essentially, um, people like Nejla Said are doing theatrically what her, her parent was doing in a scholarly manner decades earlier. Um, Edward Said was trying to uh, bring a greater awareness to the Orientalism that is inherent in our view of the Middle East. And people like Nezha Said and also other children of great scholars like Ismail Khalidi, who's the son of Rashid Khalidi, the, the Palestinian scholar who has basically uh, taken Said's place within the pantheon of Palestinian American letters. Um, they're trying to awaken us to what life is like in the Middle East, what these people are experiencing, and how um, how complicated the negotiation is for those who grow up in the Americas and return to the Middle East. So Nejla Saeed um, talks very personally about her um, anorexia, her bouts with anorexia, um, and she ties that into her feelings of guilt about being a Palestinian American, living uh, such a comfortable life in New York City uh, while her relatives are suffering in the West Bank and in Gaza. So these are the kinds of things that the return to the homeland plays uh, present us with. The idea that we are connected to these other places, yet we are in a privileged position when we return there, um, while um, the people who are living there are uh, dealing with many of the unfortunate situations that sometimes are brought on by the very governments that we are supporting with our tax dollars. And this becomes one of the complicated uh, conflicts, inner conflicts that these uh, artists are dealing with. Um, the next play or the next uh, genre would be societal and governmental persecution. And Yusuf El-Gundi, who's um, one of the most prominent uh, Egyptian-American playwrights working in the, in the American theater, wrote a play called Back, Back of the Throat after 9-11 about a, a Muslim-American uh, man living uh, in his small apartment who gets a knock on the door and is then interrogated and brutalized by FBI agents um, who accuse him of being part of uh, some terroristic plot. Um, and Al-Gundi is trying to posit that um, there is something inherently uh, um, complicated about being Muslim American, especially after 9-11, where one is viewed with suspicion just for being Muslim. And so by dramatizing the lives of Muslim Americans, Yusuf El-Gundi is opening us up to ideas of how um, Muslim Americans are trying to negotiate their place in America uh, at a time when they are being othered, uh, viewed with suspicion, and persecuted by the government. Um, and these are not uh, just artistic notions. Uh, there have been many stories of uh, the FBI and CIA infiltrating mosques, trying to uh, set up informants, uh, recording uh, people without their consent. Uh, and, and so we're, we're finding that the dramatists in the genre are attempting to put on stage the very fears that they're experiencing in their own lives by showing that um, this kind of persecution is 
very real, unfortunate, and um, very much a part of, uh, of what's happening today in the United States. Um, there are diaspora plays like Mosque Alert, where uh, the uh, idea of a Muslim community wanting to set up a mosque in a small town in Illinois uh, are faced with complete and utter opposition by uh, um, a, uh, a business owner who has no desire to have any kind of a mosque in the town um, and sets up a, a website called MosqueAlert.com and basically riles up the entire town to, to um, speak in opposition to these Muslims who are trying to uh, set up this mosque. Interestingly enough, however, um, the one of the characters who's gay, um, it tries to align with the imam of the mosque and they have a conflict themselves uh, when the imam cannot openly um, um, sanction uh, the, the character's uh, presence as a gay person. And so we see the intersectionality crashing uh, within these groups that should find common cause, but cannot because of, say, traditional religious values versus um, the values of, of the people who are attempting to support them. Um, we also see uh, business interests that uh, that arise that say, well, uh, having a mosque in town is bad, not just for um, religious um, reasons, but also for business reasons, uh, that it might detract people from coming to downtown if there's this mosque there. So you, uh, Jamil Khoury, who's the artistic director of Silk Road Rising in Chicago, and who wrote this play, um, who is Christian Arab, of Christian Arab descent himself, um, is trying to wrestle with the complexities of what it means to have a, uh, a diasporic population that is trying to achieve the quote-unquote American dream uh, within a context where uh, many are in opposition to their very existence within these communities and definitely in opposition to their um, building of, say, religious uh, institutions. And Unfortunately, we're seeing this play out uh, very much uh, across the world. I mean, if we're looking at what's happening in France right now, uh, with this desire to um, uh, to strip people of the of the right to wear religious clothing, um, it's not that hard to believe that this kind of uh, dystopian view, if you will, that Jamil Khoury is positing could happen uh, and is not and is already happening here in many ways. So, um, Jamil's uh, play is. Uh, this um, very complex uh, view of uh, middle America and how middle America is dealing with these issues. And the Ground Zero Mosque, for instance, the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, I should say, uh, was, uh, was stopped in its tracks because of its proximity to, to the uh, World Trade Center. Ironically, however, when they were excavating the wreckage of the World Trade Center, they found the cornerstone for the first Maronite Arab church that was in what was then little Syria um, uh, almost a century before. So uh, it's it's hard to believe that we have these ideas that people are somehow infiltrating these spaces when indeed they've been there for quite a while. And uh, and we've had a kind of historical and cultural amnesia when it comes to these issues. Uh, Diaspora plays also include things like the Armenian genocide. What happens when um, genocide survivors come to the United States, try to start a new life, but are beset by post-trauma and are unable to, uh, to uh, really reach their full potential because of the horrific traumas they endured in their past? And then their children are dealing with uh, a survivor's 
post-trauma, secondary trauma. Um, and so this play is, is an Armenian-American uh, woman's uh, uh, desire to look back at her own parents' past and to try to understand how they um, both survived this horrific uh, genocide, came to this country, and then still were unable to really find themselves, find their footing here, and how even she uh, struggles with the past that she has inherited as an Armenian American. So this kind of work is extremely powerful and also very personal. Um, the playwright Adriana Savan Nichols actually took this play to Armenia. It was translated and performed at the National Theater in Yerevan, and um, uh, she said it was one of the most powerful moments of her life, being able to take a play like this back to the homeland and to perform it in the original Armenian language. So uh, these plays transcend boundaries and cultures. A uh, play set in the homeland, like Nine Parts of Desire by Heather Raffo, an Iraqi-American uh, playwright and performer, uh, where she plays nine different Iraqi women who are dealing with the traumas of the First and Second uh, Gulf War. And uh, she embodies all the characters herself in this production and uh, plays them beautifully. Uh, this was a very important uh, post-9-11 play that dealt with not only the first Iraq War, but the second. And uh, since that time, Heather Raffo has written uh, Fallujah, an opera about the Iraq War, and also a play called Noura, which is about an Iraqi American family trying to negotiate their lives in the United States in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion and subsequent pullout of Iraq um, uh, in, these, in these times. And so Heather Raffo is a very committed artist trying to ask, what does it mean to be Iraqi, to be Iraqi American in this time uh, of um, these, these um, wars that are so devastating. And Raffo herself comes from an Iraqi Christian community in Mosul that has dealt with genocide of their own. So she's reflecting the, the traumas that people in Mosul face, not only from the U.S. invasion, but also from ISIS uh, and the horror that they inflicted on the uh, populations in the Middle East uh, in the past decade as well. Um, an, another wonderful play is Food and Fedwa, which crosses the line between plays set in the homeland and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Food and Fedwa is a powerful play uh, that takes place in the West Bank under uh, curfew and deals with a Palestinian family that is trying to uh, survive uh, under the occupation. Um, they're also dealing with um, family members that emigrated to the U.S. and are coming back and no longer feel connected to, to any notions of Palestine whatsoever. And so what happens when families are broken apart because of diaspora, because of conflict and because of war? And how can people who leave a place come back to it and still feel a connection to that place when so much has changed in their absence? And the last uh, play I'll talk about is Wrestling Jerusalem by Aaron Davidman, a one-person show where he plays uh, he, he plays both Israelis and Palestinians who uh, are uh, dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he embodies all of these characters and plays them all with accent, with physicality, and it's a very powerful one-person one person show. One thing I do want to talk about with this particular production, which is so brilliant, is Davidman is going, he, he went back to Israel and he went to Palestine and he listened to the people he embodied their stories, and he presents us with a complex, 
uh, dialogue between what's happening with Israelis and Palestinians. And he, and he brings a great humanity to both sides of this conflict that is often lost when we're talking about it um, as this sort of abstract political war, uh, forgetting that this is dealing, this is really affecting many um, human beings on the ground every day uh, who are just stuck in the middle of very extreme circumstances. So uh, the, the UO library has this DVD. I urge you to see it. It's also on Amazon uh, Prime Video if you can rent it. Uh, I just highly urge you to, uh, to see this if you can. It's a powerful performance. Um, and I want to just leave with one last thing and another thank you to the Oregon Humanities Center, who provided the subvention funds for my next publication, The Vagrant Trilogy by Mona Mansour. Um, the Oregon Humanities Center provided both subvention funds for the photograph that is on the cover that you see here, and also uh, to pay the scholar Dia Abdo, the uh, preeminent Palestinian scholar, to provide a critical essay. So thank you again to Oregon Humanities Center. And with that, I think I will stop and we can take some questions, perhaps. Thank you so much, Michael. Sorry for the sound complications. What I would suggest we do is um, after we're done, will you please send to us the links, all the YouTube links, and we will share them with everyone who has registered for the talk so they can watch them at their leisure. Happily, happily. Uh, yes. So um, the first question uh, concerns uh, something that you didn't talk about directly, um, but it came up indirectly in particular uh when you showed us the the uh, slide about food and fadwa yes. which is a co-authored play and i gather that it is co-authored by a palestinian or a palestinian american and a jewish person as well actually right? no they're both palestinian americans uh, -huh. uh second generation palestinian americans yeah so i wanted to ask about that question about um do any of these arab American playwrights collaborate with non-Arab American playwrights in writing about the Arab-Israeli conflict or any other uh, of the various topics or themes that you've mentioned? Interestingly enough, uh, I think the greatest example of what you're speaking of, Paul, is the band's visit, as a matter of fact. Uh, a co-collaboration between Arab-American and Jewish-Israeli-American uh, 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 composers, playwrights, and uh, director uh, cast. That for me is the great moment where we were able to bring together, we, I wasn't part of the team, but I'm saying we as a theatrical community perhaps, were able to come together and create a piece about the Middle East that had Arab actors, had Jewish actors, Israeli actors, um, who came together and really created this moment that showed the shared humanity of both sides. Now, to be fair, it was an Egyptian band coming to Israel, so there is the peace treaty there. They weren't Palestinian. That said, it's still such an important thing because what it does is it shows the commonality of music, culture, um, the, the fact that these people are coexisting. <laughs> it's not always war. It's not always chaos and, and uh, difficulty. There is coexistence happening. And I think that that musical is one of the shining examples of the collaboration of which you speak. So the next question is uh, from Dorote. And um, let me just give you the background here. Um, the question, it's about uh, Isaac Butler's new book, The Method. Mm. You may not know that book. I'm sure you know of The Method, however. I Yes. Um, and this book addresses all the controversies around Stanislavski, uh, as you know. And um, Darte is wondering if and how these debates 
about theatrical acting techniques inform Middle Eastern American theaters or performances? Well, one of the difficulties that I think many quote-unquote hyphenated groups face in theater is how can one retain the cultural essence while um, working within Western, quote-unquote, Western frameworks? And I think that's something the Black Arts Movement, for instance, was dealing with. How do we retain an essentially Black art movement that still has to utilize proscenium arches and Western dramaturgy? And there are two thoughts on this. One is to hybridize to say we are going to take the tools of Western theater, create a hybrid model and create that kind of theater that looks and sounds Western, but has the themes of the Middle East. The other is to say, no, let's break away and use traditional Middle Eastern forms, like for instance, the halata, the, 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 the circular form where people perform and people stand around them. And it's kind of a theater in the round, if you will, but it's very much based in, say, North African uh, performance techniques. So I think that there's a debate as to how this is done. The majority of the people I've shown you work within a very Western model, however, and would utilize Stanislavskian or Strasbourgian techniques, et cetera, because they were all trained that way. The way that we train students in the United States is very much in that method. So they were trained that way and they're adapting their stories to that Western method. But there are others that say, no, we need to really try to capture the uh, very traditional Middle Eastern forms and utilize those instead in order to give a greater sense of the richness of the culture by doing so. A related question, are there examples of Arab American plays uh, and performances that um, draw on avant-garde theatrical techniques, Brechtian techniques, mm -hmm. as a way of sort of uh, negotiating that, that, that complexity that you just described? Well, the one artist I'll bring up is Reza Abdo, who was one of the preeminent postmodern Iranian-American artists who dealt with some of the most transgressive issues imaginable. Um, I think Reza Abdo was the person who was able to even though I, I would say the plays did not directly deal with Middle Eastern-ness, they definitely were from a Middle Eastern lens. And he and his brother, uh, who also collaborated with him, created these productions. And they were extremely avant-garde, cutting edge, really on the, he's considered one of the great postmodern uh, American uh, theater makers. And I think that would be the person I would point to as somebody who really took those avant-garde notions and took Middle Eastern American identity and melded those things together very successfully. The majority of the plays that I've written about in my book actually are not very avant-garde, if you will. They, they stick to traditional forms of dramaturgy, but that said, they still deal with very controversial topics uh, because uh, they're dealing with things like the Armenian genocide, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Algerian civil war, et cetera. It's clear that one of the aims of the book, and I, it's also clear that one of the aims of, of some of these plays at least, is an educational aim uh, to educate American audiences, American readers about the richness of and variety of this theatrical tradition. Uh, can you give us a sense of the, the, what, the degree to which those efforts of education and spreading the word have been successful? Well, Heather Raffo talks about the fact that when she performed her play, Nine Parts of Desire, uh, and her opera, Fallujah, which she wrote the, the book for, not the music, but the book and lyrics, um, that she said people came up to her from all walks of life 
wherever she traveled, whether they were in U.S. military, whether they were uh, very right wing, uh, uh, let's say politically, um, she said people came up to her and said, wow, I didn't really know that about those people. <laughs> I mean, one of the most shocking con uh, notes I ever received after giving a lecture about Middle Eastern theater was, I had no idea that those people weren't all terrorists. And I just was, you know, it all, I almost fell out of my chair when I heard that. But the truth is these artists are really performing acts of translation. And I don't mean translation linguistically, I mean translation culturally. They're, they're taking this often maligned and, and stereotyped group. And, and if you've ever seen uh, many films, especially American films, uh, military films, you'll see that there's no end to the uh, stereotyping uh, of Middle Easterners, uh, the anti-Semitism, the Islamophobia, um, it's everywhere. And uh, Jack Shaheen, Dr. Jack Shaheen, who's now passed, wrote a great book called Real Bad Arabs, R-E-E-L, Bad Arabs. And I highly recommend you reading that or see the documentary. He talks about this because ultimately the media, unfortunately, for better or worse, um, it tends to um, give us a very one or two dimensional view of this part of the world. And these artists are saying, let's look at the three dimensional aspect. Let's look at these people who are literally suffering under civil wars, under occupations, under um, tremendous economic uh, deprivation and political uh, deprivation if they're living under the dictators in the Middle East who are often unfortunately supported by the West. So these are the kinds of things that I think these artists are trying to bring to the fore. Um, and they also show warts and all, so to speak. Uh, they're not just giving you these pretty pictures of perfect people. As a matter of fact, they're giving very difficult portrayals sometimes that often anger the community. Some people say, we don't want to be perceived like that. Well, the truth is, you know, we need to, quote unquote, air the dirty laundry and, uh, and show everything if we're going to be truly honest about this portrayal. Have there been any efforts to adapt any of these plays for the screen? There have been, but I can tell you it's very difficult. Uh, a lot of my colleagues cannot get enough funding to put up a play, much less make a film. I know Heather Raffo is currently filming Nine Parts of Desire. Um, it'll, you know, it's an indie film, so it's not going to be on the big screen. Um, but I can, I can say that this is one of the greatest challenges we're facing in this community, which is lack of funding. Uh, I, I have so many colleagues with many plays on their hard drives that they can't even get enough money for readings, much less full productions. So I would just say that we need much more commitment from our own communities to get these plays produced. Uh, early in your talk, you 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 spoke about colorism in the Arab American community. Have any of the plays that you've uh, 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 included in 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 your study or in your anthologies dealt in particular with that topic, that complex topic? Well, you know, yes, there there have been some. It's very interesting to me that um, colorism is not more directly dealt with. I think when you have a litany of troubles, <laughs> uh, it's like, which do, you, which do you address? Um, and I think that because we are so caught up in the political and social upheavals of the Middle East, uh, oftentimes those become the primary uh, fo focus or a foci of the, of the productions, as opposed to notions of colorism. But, um, but there are plays that are trying to deal with traditional notions of 
race, traditional notions of what, what does and doesn't constitute somebody's Arabness. Um, and also, uh, I think that over time, we're going to find many more plays that do directly uh, deal with colorism head on, because um, for a very long time, it's literally been ignored uh, uh, or just erased. And, and it's, it's, I think that many of the, the newer uh, theater makers are no longer willing to do that. They're willing to uh, challenge this kind of thing head on. The next question is about plays like the last one that you described, where you have an actor who plays multiple characters who occupy multiple subject positions among the complexities that you're describing. Sure. Are there a, are, are, are there a lot of uh, performances like that? And what has been the impact of that particular approach to this problem? I think that some of the strongest plays of the genre are solo performance, whether it's Davidman, Nezha Said, Leila Buck, um, uh, uh, Heather Raffo, what it does is it makes the humanity undeniable. I mean, to have somebody who, let's say, is Palestinian playing an Israeli or vice versa, to embody the very views that you may or may not agree with politically, socially, religiously, it, it really is an act of transfer. And it's a very powerful act of empathy and crossing of uh, very complicated interior borders, if you will. And by doing so, I think also it causes the audience to think and say, I can't deny this. You know, I can no longer deny that these people have a subjectivity, they have a point of view. Um, I, I think it's a it's a very important intervention. And I think solo performance is truly uh, one of the defining aspects of this genre, Middle Eastern American theater. There are many more, in my opinion, solo performances than there are traditional playwrights. And that, that I think it's bringing a great richness to, to the landscape, if you will, of this, this form. In light of that response, are there instances where uh, plays that do the kind of work you just described have been uh, performed in political contexts where their uh, humanistic emphasis could have beneficial uh, political consequences? Well, I, uh, I think that anytime you, the, the question about theater we always ask is, are we just pre preaching to the converted, right? Uh, are, are the people who just agree with us coming to our productions and therefore, what are we really changing? Becomes a, a major question. But when a lot of these performers take these shows on the road, if you will, they do come across audiences that may or may not agree with them. Um, and to almost to a person that when I've spoken to them, they, they've had positive uh, uh, responses. But I got to tell you, there are some that have not. Um, there is a performer uh, named Jennifer Jaja, who's Palestinian Christian. Uh, her family comes from Ramallah, from as far back as you can imagine. Um, she did a play called I Heart Hamas and other things I'm afraid to tell you. Now, she does not heart Hamas, but she does uh, speak for uh, the Palestinian community that's, that's dealing with occupation. And the amount of vitriol she has faced has been tremendous. Um, what does one do when one puts such controversial topics on the table, so to speak? And what she's trying to do is she's trying to open us up to the idea that this is a very complicated, not a two, quote unquote, two-sided uh, conflict. There, there are many shades of gray within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that she brings up. But I think that just titling her play that way automatically made people either reject her or 
despise her, um, when in truth, what she's trying to say is, I am trying to bring this, uh, a more complicated understanding of this as a Palestinian American to this conflict, uh, not as somebody who's looking at it as a uh, sort of talking polemical head, if you will. It's clear that one of your personal interests is through the anthologies, especially, but also through this book, is to, to, to make these plays more available. Mm -hmm. The next question has to do with your efforts to get these plays published. Have publishers been completely responsive or have you had to fight for the, the to convince them? What's that been like? I, I've been I've been shocked and amazed that they've actually been very open and 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 especially the publishers I've worked with McFarland out of North Carolina and Bloomsbury have been very open and I'm grateful. You know, um, for for a very long time, I, I can tell you from my own experience. I, I I have three theater degrees, three higher education degrees, and we rarely ever came across any uh, Middle Eastern or Arab American plays because they were not published. I mean, and to this day, there are plays that are just resting on hard drives, sitting in boxes. And so I think one of the great, uh, the, the great challenges I've faced is how do we bring the legitimacy of books, you know, who are surrounded by books at a university, how do we bring the legitimacy uh, to this form? Well, one way is to put it in a book, to publish it, to have it widely available, because these plays are often done once and never seen again on stage. So the only lasting impact they have is through publication. And so I feel grateful that I've been able to publish uh, these plays to get them out onto bookshelves at universities, theaters, etc. Um, and also, um, I've had the great fortune of working with UO Special Collections to set up the Yusufel Gundi papers. So if you'd like to learn more about Yusufel Gundi, one of the premier Arab American players, Writes. All you need to do is go over to our library. You can see his his notes, his drafts, uh, his original publications. Um, this is, I think, that we in the academy, especially, need to find ways to bring the place into the academy in a form that the academy respects, i.e., books. And uh, and in that sense, hopefully, with more and more of these publications over time, we'll we'll get a kind of critical mass going that makes this genre undeniable. Because it's always it's been there for over a hundred years, but it's just never seen. So therefore, it's been denied, and we can no longer deny it no, any more than we can deny Asian American theater, African American theater, Native American theater, Latinx theater. We you know we it's incumbent upon us to diversify the theater. The theater has been too Euro American centric for too long, frankly. Are you? Do you have any uh, evidence if if these publications are getting? Um, taken up in in university theater classes or uh, theater classrooms? You know, I can't say I, I do. I can't say I, I <laughs> am trolling theater professors to ask them uh, what they're doing. But, uh, you know, I, I got to believe that uh, they are. I mean, the, the sales have been decent, according to, you know, academic publication as, as far as that's concerned. Um, the, the big question for me is, you know, how many of these plays can be incorporated into classes and then how many of them can show up on stages? Because that's the, the next level. It's one thing to read a play, but anybody who knows theater knows that a play is to a building what a blueprint is. It, it's just a blueprint. And until you embody it and cre create it on stage, it'll never reach its full potential and, and promise. So my hope is that it won't just be read, but it'll actually be taken to the next level and performed. And those plays performed, I think, will change the, the dynamic in performance, really. So, Michael, we're coming to the end of our time. This next question has to do with that point that you just raised. You spoke earlier about how um, very few 
there are so many of these plays that are not getting performed because they don't have funding to get performed. One of the, there are, the question is about two possible solutions to that problem. One is the academy. That is if theater professors who have the, the, the resources of universities behind them to start to publish them and I mean, produce them. The second is, and this is a COVID related question, has the adaptation or the adoption of Zoom facilitated the spread, the, the ability to perform these, or at least to do readings of these plays, since there has been, I mean, a lot of such performances have been produced, I mean, performances of theater have been put on in the Zoom context. Yeah, you know, uh, first, let me say, for me, universities are now the regional theaters that used to exist in the 60s and 70s. Theater has become so expensive and prohibitively expensive that now major theaters are so afraid of taking the risk of producing new plays. So they just produce the for lack of a better term, the same old chestnuts. <laughs> However, there are play theaters like ACT, who is producing Hotter Than Egypt by Yusuf Al-Gundi, I, which I just saw uh, last weekend. So there's still theaters out there that are willing to take the risks, uh, professional theaters. That's great. But universities need to step up. Um, I, I, I hate to say it, but university uh, productions often reflect the larger mainstream, which is they produce the same you know, Shakespeare, bless Shakespeare, we love Shakespeare, but I don't know how Shakespeare became an American playwright. We put in tens of millions of dollars a year in the American theater into Shakespeare when we have starving American playwrights in their garrets writing these plays. So I'm going to ask everybody who is theatrically related, please maybe consider a, play, a living playwright because they need to get paid. Every time we do their plays, they get paid a little bit. It's not much, but at least it's something. And maybe it'll keep them going long enough until they have their breakout success. That said, the Zoom situation has made mediatized productions possible. So my colleague, uh, Andrea Seth uh, from Art to Action in Florida, filmed her 11 Reflections on September, the play about 9-11, and it is now uh, being shown on Zoom. Um, my colleague, Denmo Ibrahim, uh, shot her play Brilliant Mind as a mediatized play, and it's being now presented uh, in different contexts on Zoom and other places. So I think that the Zoom factor is helpful, but as you know, Paul, theater is live. And uh, no matter how many how well a play is produced on screen, it's never going to capture the experience. Watching Hamilton on Disney Plus is not like sitting in a theater watching Hamilton. It just isn't, but it's the next best thing. So I, I think that hopefully the Zoom intervention uh, will be a, a just something that helps uh, move the genre along, but I don't see it as a, a panacea. Well, thank you, Michael, for sharing your book in print talk with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, keep up the great, important work. We so appreciate what you're trying to do and what you're accomplishing. It's wonderful. Thank you, Paul. Thanks to everyone at the Oregon Humanities Center. And thanks to all of you who've attended today. I'm grateful. Thanks again for joining us for Michael Malik Najjar's book in print talk on Middle Eastern American theater, communities, cultures, and artists. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.